Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Pareto Podcast, run by me, Mo, a medic by trade, and my co-host, Cam, a physician associate. Now, we both work in the NHS and have been through the hoops of exams, assessments, and professional development. Healthcare is ever-evolving, and we felt that our learning stopped straight after sitting our final exams. CPD was a chore, and it became all about portfolio management. We intend to bring the latest healthcare news and research and translate it to relevant clinical practice for you. Who is this for, you ask? It's for everyone in healthcare. Healthcare and clinical practice is a shared space, so we can't continue to segment our professions. There's so much overlap and reliance on one another, so we'll aim to bring guests and insights from other people in other fields within healthcare. That's enough from me, and I guess with that, welcome to the Pareto Podcast. So we begin today's episode with an alarming statistic. Unfortunately, there have been recorded 600,000 patients waiting in A&Es across the country in excess of 12 hours. In addition to this, latest research also shows that each A&E on average is receiving an extra 500 patients. Now, Mo, you're an A&E doctor. Just explain to me a little bit about, you know, behind the scenes of these statistics and what your experience is. Yeah, um, it's quite alarming statistics, to be honest, um, and, and it's quite saddening. Um, I think it's been getting definitely worse year on year. Um, the gut feeling was that maybe the pandemic might make things a little bit better mm. because people saw an insight or great insight into the purpose behind A&E, how yeah. what A&E was for, the types of um, patients that we see. But it looks like despite that, the, the effect has been compounded um, it's been very, very difficult to, to, to handle, to be honest. And these statistics are amongst a number of statistics that are pointing out to exactly the same thing, yeah. which is that it's a very, very um, stretched service yeah. um, and that really government really need to do something about it or, or central NHS England really need to do something about it. Mm. On the ground, um, you know, statistics are statistics, but they are a reflection of what happens on the ground. And yeah. It is very difficult come uh, on the ground, to be honest. Yeah, um, it's, yeah it's, uh, it's very stressful. Um, it can get quite overwhelming. Mm. Um, and I think I'd, I'd quite like to go into some, some examples and, and, and give you a bit of an illustration. Yeah, before we get into the examples, can yeah. you talk more about, I mean, in terms of the broader sense, in terms of organisation, NHS, in, you know, like... Yeah, Then we course. can go into examples of yourself, yeah. uh, you know, your working. Yeah, yeah, no problems. Um, so, the what the, the NHS, problems? Yeah, what are the problems leading to this? You mentioned the COVID pandemic. You know, in terms of is it GPs? Is it people can't get appointments? Is it people coming in inappropriately? You mentioned what are the fundamental problems that are causing this? The think? thing is, the the first thing to appreciate is that the 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 causes are multifactorial. Okay. They're, they're not. It's, it's wrong to blame a single entity. Okay. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes we can get into a little bit of a, a blame game mm. that it's, you know, Amy's fault, it's GP's fault, it's yeah. the, the fault of managers, it's, it's multifactorial. The, the NHS obviously operates in a primary care, secondary care model. Okay. Um, and it's largely referral based. Yeah. Um, and there are a number of different points of liaison between primary care and secondary care. So, for example, you have direct referral services. You have um, kind of multi-centre or urgent care centres where there are secondary care and primary care clinicians working together. There's loads of different points of intersection, and this is how the NHS has 
has functioned and actually has become a model for, for many, many governments, many countries around the world. Yeah. That the issue is, is that each, each kind of domino in this life, line of dominoes, whether it's general practice, whether it's maternity services, whether it's um, accident emergency, whether it's um, bed capacity, whether it's, for example, staffing levels, yeah. nurses, doctors, other allied health professionals, whether it may be, there is a deficit in every single aspect wow. of this domino. Yeah. And the compounded effect really affects no one else other than patients. Um, there have been some really alarming statistics concerning patient safety mm. um, over the past few over the past few months to years. Um, long waits means that um, things are left out, for example. Yeah. Patients can be left to wait in areas that aren't necessarily designed to deal with patients who are unwell, for example, because of sheer lack of capacity. Yeah. Antibiotics might not be given them time. Treatment may not be given This can have a number of repercussions on patients. Mm. And really the concern from clinicians is we do this because of patient care. Right? Mm. I mean, that's the motivation behind why me and you went into, into healthcare. Yeah. Um, it doesn't necessarily affect us, as in us in terms of we will do the work because we're committed but it's saddening to see patients suffer. Mm. So in terms of some of the, the factors that you mentioned, there are lack of resources. Is it because of lack of investment, do you think? Is it because of lack of the infrastructure built for the population levels? What, what do you think are a little bit more in terms of what's driving the factors behind you know, each domino effect? Yeah. Because I've seen a lot of you know, health promotion about People are telling people to access different services, for example, for the level of need, and perhaps patients accessing A and E when perhaps a different service would be more appropriate. Um, so, can you tell me a little bit about that? I can certainly tell you what I've experienced. Yeah. Um, I think there's a number of different academics that have done some work on, on, on trying to understand where the NHS is and what some of the issues are. Yeah. But once again, I think even it, this is also multifactorial. Certainly, there is a lack of. Uh, a lack of investment, a lack of funding to, to drive forward the services that are needed. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a good example. Um, hospitals are very big places. Most yeah. hospitals are, are quite, uh, were, were given the spaces that they own a very, very long time ago. And they were given lots of land and they have lots of capacity to host patients. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly in some of the trusts that some of my colleagues work in, there are empty wards. There are places that they're, Patients can be held and patients can be kept. There's no staffing. Mm. We haven't necessarily seen as a profession uh, a pay rise in, in, in a number of years. Um, that's significant, especially with the cost of living crisis and, and inflation. Yeah, of course. There is certainly a lack of incentive for people to train as healthcare professionals yeah. and, and, and to take up these roles. And that's something that's not necessarily addressed. Um, it is quite grueling working in the NHS. Um, yeah. Rotors are tough. Um, shift, you know, patterns. shift patterns are difficult. It would be great to have a cushy nine-to-five job, but unfortunately, such is not the case. Um, so people do suffer suffer stress. People do suffer a great deal of ordeal and difficulties mm-hmm. um, to, to work and to commit themselves to the service. Um, but at the same time, on the, on the flip side, um, you know, there's only so much we can do based on the uh, resources that we have primary care and secondary care. Yeah. And whilst I can appreciate the, um, the, the anger, the frustration that patients have, um, there needs to be some form of bridging of understanding. 
um, in light of the NHS. So I have certainly um, experienced a number of times where, where patients have come in with, with problems that could be easily dealt with in primary care, problems that are not necessarily of an emergency nature, yeah. um, but I'm expected to, to deal with them. I mean, I'm, I'm at the moment trained in emergency medicine. I don't necessarily deal with a rash as an example. Yeah. So I'm not qualified to deal with that, but yeah, yeah I'm asked to deal with that. Yeah. Um, and that's very difficult. And sometimes when patients are looking for a definitive answer, yeah. what's going on? And you're unable to give them a definitive answer because you're not trained to do that. Yeah. No one really seems to think that actually I've come to the wrong place. Yeah. And it's that's probably why I'm not getting an answer to my question. Why do you think, you know... I'm, I'm, I'm guessing not all of these 500 extra hospital visits per coverage uh, in the department are like this, but, you know, what do you think, what do you think that other motivations around patients, you know, accessing a &E, do you think they believe that they'll be seen quicker or is it because of lack of GP um, appointments because people have been struggling, you know, to get in contact with their GPs? So I know some patients that, you know, whether the GP you know, a lot of GPs now work in a hybrid model where they do have phone telephone consultations. And some members of the population don't necessarily appreciate or feel like that's appropriate in the circumstances. Do you think that plays in, a, you know, people wanting to see a physical physician or a member of allied health professionals? Or do you think that plays into it a little bit? It probably does. I think um, the, the conversion from kind of face-to-face appointments to more kind of telephone or remote consulting yeah. was always going to happen. Mm. Um, most, I remember doing research myself um, when I was in medical school, um, so this was in 2014 about, and this was when telehealth was first being introduced, and there were some objective, objective statistics as to, you know, telemedicine being able to facilitate faster turnover of patients, you, you, you know, clinicians being able to deal with simpler problems over the telephone or over video. So it was always going to happen. It's just that the, the pandemic made it happen a lot quicker than, than anyone expected it. Mm. So there is a little bit of a culture change that needs to be absorbed, mm. not only by patients, but also by, by um, medical doctors and medical professionals. Yeah. Um, so, so there is an element of that. And, and I can completely appreciate that seeing a clinician is definitely different as an experience to, to, to kind of speaking over the phone. And I can't speak to speak about my primary care colleagues because they have put in a shift, to be honest. I know loads of GPs and people working in general practice that are really working their backsides off to see as many patients. Mm. There are many GPs. General practice is a very busy place to work at the moment. The patient load and patient demand is tough. But they're also understaffed and they're also, they don't have enough staffing. And, and we do this career and we train in order to look after patients. Yeah. But we're not necessarily provided the resources to, to do so. Um, and, and really the burden has to fall on um, a number of different moving parts um, in order to actually seek some remedy for this. Yeah, that's very, some, very, some very interesting points. Oh, so. so in terms of in terms of your experience, talk me through like a very busy any shift. I mean, how do you manage when there's so many patients waiting for so many hours? I mean, are patients how does it work? Like, say I, I've come in with chest pain and a real heart attack. Am I prioritizing about the patient who's been waiting longer? How does the priority system work? And, you know, for someone who is not in that general field. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the first thing is that the any the the um, any is really the the entry point for secondary care. Okay. What, what I mean by that is for 
the things that are more complicated mm. and the things that are more of an emergency nature okay. that need to be dealt with immediately. Our GP colleagues um, have limited resources in their capacity as GPs. They don't have access to x-rays. They don't have access to immediate yeah. blood tests. Yeah. So therefore, there is something or a problem that needs to be dealt with straight away kind of goes through any. The only acid emergencies operate on a triage system. Yeah. It's the only practical way to do that based on the number of patients that, that we see. Um, so, for example, patients come in, they're, they're seen by a triage nurse. They are prioritized based on the severity of the problem. Um, so, for example, a rash is always going to be secondary priority versus someone who's got left-sided chest pain. Okay. You know, if you're thinking of a heart attack. Most definitely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, an obviously deformed limb is always going to be more prioritized than, you know, an ankle sprain, as an yeah. example. So, and whilst both of them are problems, one is definitely going to be more important than the other. So that's one way, so the nature of the problem. The other way that things are kind of triaged is observation. So all patients have, you know, blood pressures, um, you know, uh, saturations, oxygen levels, etc. taken at the front door. And if those are deranged considerably, then of course, you know, where where they're, they're seen quicker. So so we operate based on a triage model. And it's not it's not robotic in the sense that there are often part points where you know, if someone is deemed to be quite unwell, yeah. or if someone can be really dealt with relatively quickly, yeah. uh, triage nurses and triage staff are, rel- are, are excellent at getting a hold of a doctor or getting hold of an ACP or getting hold of a physician associate and asking them to see the patient yeah. um, and to kind of deal with the acute problem quickly. So, so it's a rigid, but also there's a level of fluidity in the system flexibility. and flexibility in the system. Yeah. And of course, the, the, the nature of the problems vary because you have you know, physical kind of medical problems, heart attacks, asthma, all of the things that you really, you know, fractures, bullet wounds, stabbings, etc. things that you really associate with, with uh, a But you also have mental health problems, mental health crises. Yeah. You also have people of, you know, have undergone some form of assault, for example. Yeah. Um, you have loads of different problems and they're all triaged according to a, a robust system, a tested system, but also clinician experience. Mm. So you're saying it's not generally like algorithmic, it's your own clinical expertise, your judgment is all pointing to that when triaging patients. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And do you feel that in terms of currently with the amount of people that are waiting for so many hours, are these people that are generally well and could go home or are these people that are waiting to see a clinician or are they waiting to see a bed or is it a mixture of both or? So genuinely and generally speaking, it is a mixture of both. Okay. But despite the limited resources that accident emergency has and the amount of pressure on accident emergency, A&E staff are trained to really think very quickly. All right. So we think really quickly. Mm. And there are a number of decisions that we have to make almost immediately when we see a patient. One of the most important decisions that we're trained to make or any doctors are trained to make and any clinicians are trained to make is can this patient go home or does this patient need to be admitted Mm. so we look at the patient we look at the observations we look at you know screening blood tests and we make a very quick decision the other thing if they if they're a patient that needs to go home we try and sort them out send them home if they're a patient that needs to stay then we think okay how unwell is this patient does this patient need to be seen straight away does this patient can can this patient wait to be seen Mm. and we don't get it right all the time because Time is the best exposure of situations, 
Sometimes someone comes in pretty well, and then over the next two or three hours, they become pretty bad. Right? I'm sure you can appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so, so um, there is, you know, a level of experience. There is a level of, you know, gut feeling. There are all of these different things playing. But if a patient definitely looks quite unwell, we try and take them to the relevant area. So A&Es have, for example, resuscitation areas where really sick patients go to, mm-hmm. um, and that are really well staffed with multiple clinicians that can deal with such sick patients, nurses, good nursing numbers, genuinely speaking, and also wider medical staff, medical doctors, surgical doctors, other expertise that we can draw on. Um, and if patients are a little bit more you know, better, then they're sent to the appropriate area. But I want to, I, I hasten to add, you know, the, the issue is also on the other side. Because yeah. when you've got a blockage yeah. of beds, when you don't have enough beds upstream, so if a patient needs to be admitted, for example, but there isn't a bed, then these patients can stay in A&E for a long time. And that's kind of the stats that you mentioned mm. initially. Um, and that causes a, um, that causes backflow. So if you imagine you've got upstream blockage, then now you've got loads of patients that should have been transferred to the ward staying in A&E. Mm. Therefore, there's no real capacity to, to, to kind of station new patients. Mm. And then you get, you know, the standard thing that you see in, in broadsheet newspapers that people are on trolleys, people are waiting outside, people are waiting in ambulances, people are waiting here, etc. It's not our fault. It's because, you know, there's no movement and because of the, what I mentioned. I did hear an interesting perspective the day when I was reading the, in terms of the difference between an A&E and an acute inpatient uh, ward. Um, you know, A&E can accommodate so many extra people where really unwillingly in terms of how many extra beds, trolleys, people waiting in the waiting room, waiting outside in um, the ambulances, whether I'm not really seeing that same situation in an acute inpatient ward. Mm. How many beds, that's the max they will take and anything extra they will consider unsafe and they won't take an extra patient. Mm. But that pressure is sort of taken on A&E's head, if that makes sense. So, you know, that's something I think is a bit of a difference between an inpatient ward and what they experience. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, you guys have your own challenges in inpatient wards. I think you you deal with, you know, you're, you're really trying to deal with the complexity of issues and you can have patients that stay on, on a ward for a long time. Of course. But there is no let up from an A&E point of view. You've got to see whoever walks in the front door. Yeah. And um, that can become really difficult. So everything is a resource map. Like, you know, the bed, the trolley, the chair, the seat, the edge of a bed, the edge of a, every single thing. Every single space is a resource. Yeah, yeah. The waiting room is a resource. Okay. Because you are seeing everything and anyone who's walking through the door mm. and you want to with the goodness of your heart give them the best service that yeah they can absolutely get. which is what you've trained for what you educate what you're passionate about it's true and, it, and it's hurtful sometimes that mm. sometimes you're doing things Cam that you're not necessarily trained for mm. like for example you know if there have been days where patients have been in A&E on quite an uncomfortable trolley because A&E trolleys are not like hospital beds by the way I'm not sure you know this but mm. um, you know we use like really hard, firm mattresses in our trolley because the idea is that they're only there for a few hours. But hospital beds are like water beds yeah. and, uh, you know, they're a lot more comfortable. So, you know, if you've got someone who's like 80 years old, 90 years old, who can't, who can't turn themselves over physically, they're on a, on a really uncomfortable bed for a long time 
And we're quite good in a and We try to get hospital beds as, much, as quick as we can, but sometimes they just aren't really available because we just don't have any. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking. It really is heartbreaking to see someone struggle because they're uncomfortable in a bed. You know, we're, because of patients... Um, are, are, are there for so long. Sometimes, like, I'm having to do things and other, you know, any consultants, any doctors, any ACPs, any physician associates are having to do ward rounds. Yeah, wow. Mate, I haven't done a ward round in ages. <laughs> but I know that's what you do daily, but, you know, you're, you're having to, like, review a patient. That's not, it's not out of this world. It can be done, but it's not what you're trained to. We're trained to see the patient, identify the problem, yeah. and get them sorted by the specialty that has, and the, and the clinicians in that specialty that are trained to deal with that problem. We're not here to do, do, uh, dig deeply into, into an issue. Yeah. From my understanding, a is if a patient comes in, see them, stabilize them and take them into inpatient ward, whether that's medicine or surgery, or, you know, say they're safe to go home and send them home. In terms of all ward rounds and multiple drug rounds and you know nursing hub, this is kind of you know giving that blur between what A and E is and you know other services which are it's not designed to do. It's not. It's it's absolutely not. Um, mm. And that's where it becomes very 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 difficult for us. Yeah. Um, and it has a toll. It definitely has a toll um, because you want to be doing, you want to do something that you love. Yeah. Fundamentally. Absolutely. Um, and what you trained for or what you've committed yourself to. Um, and when you're not doing that, and when you're doing something that you're not necessarily com- comfortable with, mm. you start to grovel. And I've seen many of my colleagues really grovel yeah. um, and, and express themselves in, in ways that is not like them. Mm. Um, but it's not their problem. Absolutely. I mean, from just from my own personal experience, I've heard so many you know, junior doctors say, you know, I'd love to work in any work because of the shift patterns, the grueling training program, and also the amount of pressure that you're under and the amount of, you know, intensive, how intense it is, it's just not a viable option for them. And I think that's a real, a real shame because it is missing out on these current clinicians that would love to work there, whether that's nursing staff, allied health professionals, doctors, mm. you know, that would make amazing clinicians in any, you know, that perfect suit to the role, but because of these conditions that currently we're facing, we're losing out we're not having these uh, colleagues training these services. It's true. I mean, I'm sure you can appreciate all of the uh, all of the good programs are all about casualty. <laughs> <laughs> whether it's Holby City, yeah. Uh, whether it's you know any program in ER, for example, based in 24, 24 hours and 80. It's all about the action that's there, and there is a lot of action, and there's so much good in the specialty. And we and and you know in AD you do see everything, and you have a story every day, and some of those stories will start to come out in. in in this particular, in some of the, our subsequent episodes, um, but but you're right. You know, it is a, it is a difficult environment to work in, and yeah. it's only getting tougher. Okay. Okay. So some very interesting points, uh, Mohammed, and even I've learned a lot from your experience and you know some other research shows. Now, for someone who's not familiar with the AE, you know, accident emergency, you're seeing patients that are what we call undifferentiated, where there's not been given a diagnosis. Oftentimes, it can be a lot more simpler once a patient has been given a diagnosis. This person has cellulitis, a skin infection. You know what you're going to do. But you see patients that are, you know, have a query, head, you know, pain in the head, chest pain, 
abdominal pain. It's so varied, so many different diagnoses come in. Mm. So just tell me, sort of, in simple terms, fundamentally, when you see a first patient, when you first see a patient, how do you differentiate that? What's your process? All right. Simple terms. Good question. Right, yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. So what's my process? Um, I'll try and summarise it, and hopefully, uh, if there's any other questions, you can you can you can question me further on my process. But um, so so A and E, like as mentioned, you're 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 taught to make decisions very quickly. Yeah. Um, and you tend to see patients relatively quickly in a safe way, but because it's such a high pressure environment, and there's not much time that you have in order to take your you know there's there's not much time that you have. Um, to see a patient in detail, you're kind of making decisions and making an impression of a decision of a patient quickly. So golden rules, and I think I'll try and go through those golden rules. So the first thing is what's going on at the bedside. All patients have observations the minute they walk through the door. Yeah. All patients, you can see all patients because it's a completely face-to-face specialty. Yeah. So you know exactly how a patient looks, whether they're pale, whether they're clammy where they're holding their chest or where they're holding their head tells you so much about what the patient is coming with. For example, a frontal headache, not too worried about. Headache in the back back of the head, a little bit more worried about. Chest pain, holding the right side of the chest, not too worried about. Holding the left side of the chest, damn right, I'm worried about it, right? Um, And the observation, if they're, you know, what's their blood pressure like? Their low blood pressure, a little bit worried, a little bit more sensitive to it. What's their heart rate like? Um, what's their oxygen levels like? We've just come out of COVID and we know everyone's going to be talking about oxygen levels. Yeah. So if their oxygen levels are, are low, then and if they're requiring oxygen where they normally don't, all of these are red flags. All of these are telling me, like I said, my framework is, does this patient need to come into hospital or does this patient need to go home? That's a golden question yeah. I'm asking myself every minute. So if some of these things are off, then I'm thinking like a seesaw, probably more, yeah. more hospital yeah. Or probably needs to stay into hospital as opposed to going home. Yeah. Then I start to see the patient count. Mm. And in A&E, we're taught to use an ABCDE system. Okay. All right. I know we're, we're all taught to use the ABCDE system, but but we really rely on it as as in, as emergency clinicians. So air. So A is the airway. Is the patient able to breathe? And is is the patient is is the airway completely? You know, are they able to talk? Is there something, is there a noise that I can hear that's stopping them from breathing? Are they choking, as an example? Because that's the most important thing. If you can't breathe, if this is blocked, then that's a problem, right? So A is, is airway. B, they're breathing. Let me think about their breathing. Are they breathing in a funny way, right? So are they taking really, really deep breaths to breathe? That tells me that maybe they're struggling. Maybe there's something internal going on there, right? Are they breathing in a symmetrical way? Is their chest rising symmetrically or not? And if it's not, then have they had some trauma to that area? Is there some form of fracture? I need to think about, have they fallen and hurt themselves? Of course, the golden stethoscope. <laughs> um, got to listen to their chest. Is there a wheeze? So has their asthma or their COPD? So really simple things. But I'm looking at breathing. That's one criteria that I'm looking at. Then I'm looking at circulation. What's their blood pressure like? What's their heart rate like? Mm. Can I hear anything additional with regards to their heart? Is their heart in a good rhythm or is it out of rhythm? Mm. These are things that are that I'm thinking about. And as I'm thinking about the A, the B, and C and working through this, I'm then thinking, and this this decision making, 
do they need to come into hospital? Yeah. Do they need to go? That starts to, I'm adding more information to that framework. Then I'm looking at D, which stands for disability. Are they unconscious? Of course, if they're unconscious, that's problematic, mm. right? What's their glucose like? What are their pupils like? Are they reacting? Are they not? Are they looking? Are they able to see? Are they following my commands? Really simple things. I want to see them comprehensively. And E is kind of everything else. They got any swelling anywhere? Are their legs swollen? Just looking for clues, looking for ideas. What is the diagnosis I'm working with? What is the problem that I'm trying to, trying to solve? And therefore, what decision am I trying to make? And once I've gone through those rounds, and it's not a one-stop process, and if they come in with significant trauma, there's a few things that I've added to that as well, because I need to look into their ears, look into their eyes, look into their mouth, a few things. But the A, B, C, D, E is, is the core system. And the end of that process, I come up with a plan. So I think this is what's going on. So you come up with a diagnosis, well, a definitive diagnosis or maybe one or two things? Like yeah, a couple, of, a couple of things. So I think this is what's going on, right? Or it could be X, Y, and Z, or it could be X and Y and Z. It could be three problems. Mm-hmm. Um, three problems. Absolutely often happens. And therefore, okay, what do I do about it? Okay, so I need to do A, B, C, D test. Right. So, you know, this test, this test, it could be a blood test, it could be an x-ray, it could be a number of things. I might need to organize an ultrasound scan. I could sometimes do the ultrasound scan myself, etc., etc. Um, and then after that, once again, wait for these results, yeah. work out what's going on. Can this problem be solved at home? Can I give them some antibiotics that they can go home? Can I organize someone to go out to them when they're at home? Are they safe to go home? Do they have, if they're elderly, have they got someone at home that they can go home to? Yeah. Is there someone to care for them? Or keeping all things into account, do they need, you know, need to come into hospital? Do I need to give them some IV antibiotics? You know, do they need further scans? Do they need a further look into? Is this more complicated than what A&E can solve? Mm-hmm. And in this process, sometimes I'll talk to, I might talk to you as an example, right? Yeah. Might seek some advice from yourself, might seek some advice from, you know, a, you know someone doing, you know, respiratory physician or, or someone doing a cardiologist or from working cardiology and they can give a pharmacist as an example or, um, you know, sometimes chest physio and get their view. Can, you know, what, can we do something in A&E that might be able to turn them around or, or can we not do, can we not do this and do they need to come in? So, so that's the process, I think. And you see all sorts of patients, young, old, even see pregnant patients, do you? Newborn babies. Yeah. Everyone, all across, Ever, all across the board, all across. But 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 this process is the same. Mm. It's okay. just applied to different scenarios. So tell me, if I was to ask the question, why do it in that order? Could I do you know one section first? And if you do find a problem, do you solve it or do you wait for the process to finish and then solve issues? So why is it A, B, C, D? Why not start with, for example, blood pressure and then go back to the airway? Why why in that particular order? That's my question. Okay, good good question. I mean. The, the, the order is, is not rigid. It's, it's a framework. Okay. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an applied framework that one can use and one can easily take and, and kind of, you know, apply to any patient, really. Yeah. Um, now, you could, for example, if someone, if you start at A, and let's say, for example, someone's got um, tonsillitis, really bad tonsillitis. Okay. Right? You know, very common thing. Yeah. But their tonsils are so big that... They can't eat or drink, and they're drooling, and they can't breathe. 
and you can hear really, really loud wheeze. Now you're thinking, okay, damn, this is problematic. Yeah. I'm not really going to move on to C. I don't really care about their circulation at this point. I don't really care about what their pupils are doing or what their blood sugar is. I know that if I don't do something quickly, this person is going to cease to breathe. And that's going to be a real problem. They'll go into what we call a respiratory arrest. So therefore, I need to try and work out how to secure their airway. I would take them into the resuscitation area. I'd call anesthetics. I would call EMT as an example. Yeah. They would come. They would look at the airway. They would put the camera down if, they, if, if that's what they wish to do. And then they would try and basically control that swelling, control that tonsillitis. And then after that, I can get on and do some of the other things. It may sometimes be, and this has happened, Camille, that I'm assessing the patient and I'm going through the works and it's going, 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 and then something changes. So, for example, you know, I've done A, I've done B, I've done C. I'm now looking into their pupils. I'm asking for their blood sugar levels. I'm working out what we call their, their GCS to see their consciousness. And then all of a sudden, you know, they, they're, they're vomiting or they're, you know, bringing up huge amounts of blood. Yeah. Now I need to go back and think, okay, maybe their breathing is compromised. Yeah. Where is this blood coming from? What's going on here? So it's a framework. It's not necessarily rigid, but it's a good way to organize your own thoughts and to yeah. come into a decision. And I suppose, you know, the way that it's structured tells you what's going to likely harm you or, you know, kill you first. I mean, yeah. if the airway is not patent, that's a big problem. You don't get any oxygen into your lungs, then the next breathing, respiratory rest, cardiac, you know, the the way, the fastest way is they're going to harm you. I suppose that's the way, would that be my understanding? Yeah, absolutely. It's fun. It's fun. Mm-hmm. Well, we raised some very interesting points today and got some insight into why A&E, um, you know, why we're having such long waits, what the fundamental reasons, the multifactorial, as you explained, um, what kind of things that you do see in A&E and how it's an interesting specialty, but unfortunately due, due to the pressures and um, the way that the training program is set up and, you know, the amount of patients, the sheer numbers of patients we see, um, it's quite a difficult place to work as well. Um, but we also explored a little bit, we learned a little bit about the A2E pathway they use in uh, A&E, and I think that we can take that home, especially if you're clinicians or a student as well, into your practice as well. So thank you very much. Um, no, thank, thank you very much. No, thank you. Uh, it was a really good conversation, and thank you all for for listening. Um, we'll call it an end. Yeah. Um, you know, be sure to to like and subscribe and share this video. Um, I'm sure, and I'm hoping people benefit from it. Um, check out our website. Check out our Instagram page, Pareto Education, for all the latest updates and further episodes. Um, and features, of course. So take care. Until next time, guys. See you.